Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, more than 600 episodes and counting, all of it is available to you for free. It's offered freely. It's a listener-supported show. If you want to support the program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can also follow the show on Instagram. It now has its own Instagram feed. If you want to follow this podcast on Instagram, you can do that at otherppl.podcast. That's the Instagram handle, at otherppl.podcast. Dot podcast. I think I did that right. Okay. I think I pulled a Hello. 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 How's it going? This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you listening. I have Deb Olin Unferth on the program today. This is her second time on the program. I talked to her years ago, and uh, I just got to talk to her again. I'm very excited about that. Deb Olin Unferth is celebrating the publication of a new novel. It is called Barn 8. The critically acclaimed novel Barn 8, now available from Grey Wolf Press. It is the official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community, for those of you who are unaware. Uh, the site has been around for, what, almost 15 years. It's had a, it's a, its own monthly book club for, I think, more than a decade. And uh, if you want to know more about that, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com. So my conversation with Deb Olin Unferth happening on a Sunday. It's a special Sunday episode for Deb Olin Unferth, who, who uh, makes her triumphant return to the podcast today with her new novel, Barn 8. Uh, some orders of business. There have been some transcripts going up on the site lately. If you follow the show on social media, then I think you're probably aware. If you're not, then please know that there are transcripts uh, you know, up on the site. It's a slow trickle. This stuff takes time. But it is happening. I have a lot of transcripts. The problem is that, like, once you get the transcripts, then you have to clean up the transcripts and edit them and make sure they're right and check the time code. And then you got to transfer it over to WordPress. And, you know, it's labor intensive. So, for those of you out there who have been wondering, like, when are these transcripts ever going to show up? Well, they're showing up now. 
I just want to do it right. I don't want to put transcripts on the site that are riddled with errors. And, you know, I don't want to do that. And so for those of you out there who have never visited the show's website, it is otherppl.com, otherppl.com. And I should note, too, that when you're looking for transcripts, go to the episode guide. It's right there in the menu bar on the website. You go to the episode guide, you scroll down, you can find the transcripts. They are not going to appear on the homepage because they are all dated to correspond with the air date of their episode, if that makes sense. So if there's a transcript from an episode that happened back in 2014, it's going to appear right next to that episode in the uh, episode guide and in the timeline. I had them backdated. Does that make sense? Okay. I hope that makes sense. Let's get to the conversation. Uh, I hope you guys are doing well out there. Hang in there. Hopefully the uh, podcast is keeping you company. This uh, conversation was an absolute delight. I love talking with Deb Olin Unferth, and her new novel, Barn 8, is wonderful. It is the official March pick of the TMB Book Club, and it is available now from Grey Wolf Press. Here she is, guys. This is Deb Olin Unferth. It's not even something I really think about that much anymore. Like regular food, food that is not vegan doesn't really look like food to me anymore. It just, I don't know why. It just, there's sort of like a blurry space where there's, where there might be meat or something in in my eyes. So, so it's not, it's not very hard. It's not a real struggle for me. I mean, yeah, there's, I don't think that I would probably pop a cookie in my mouth if it wasn't vegan, but I could completely see, oh man, the suitcase that I bought has like a leather tag on it, you know, or whatever. And then I'm just like, you know what, forget, I'll just use the suitcase, you know, that kind of thing happens. I mean, none of us are pure. None of us are perfect. I mean, this, you know, I found myself drinking out of a plastic bottle the other day. I mean, it just goes, just my sins are so multitudinous that um, there's just no way to get around it. So, so that really, it, it wasn't, it wasn't at all wanting to write Barney. It wasn't wanting to write a, a conversion story of some kind. It wasn't wanting to try to convert people or to anything like that. It was just that um, I just got really intrigued by these chickens. And I just had this image in my mind of all these chickens leaving a farm and just what a relief it would be. I mean, especially as I learned more about chickens and started thinking about their similarities, their parallel history to our own, that um, chickens, you know, they were uh, nomadic, living in the forests of Southeast East Asia for so long, for so many millions of years, and they evolved there and um, lived in little little villages, little communities um, that would that would slowly shift and move. And if you think about us, that you know we also lived that way for for so long and um and now we also live in these little boxes i mean especially right now you know we live in these little boxes and don't go outside very much and we we have all of these ways that we uh, are 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 distorted from um from what we once were and so so yeah i just kind of started thinking about it and then i thought like why not chickens? People kept saying, you know, nobody cares about chickens. You know, how are you going to get the reader to care about those chickens? And and I just, I thought it was a challenge. I thought it was really fun. And plus, you know, chickens have kind of like a like a funny element to them too. I mean, I don't happen to think that chickens are particularly funny, especially now that I've researched them so much. But 
Um, but you know, but people think that they're funny. So that's a challenge too. I mean, I don't know. There was, there was just a lot, there were a lot of things. Well, I, one of the things I wanted to tell you is that, uh, I think the chickens are my favorite character in your book. <laughs> I, I love like when the, the little interludes where you, you talk about their biology and the way they exist in the world and some of their, I don't know, like physical and, um, intellectual qualities, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like you really do a nice job of adding dimension to them because, you know, things being the way that they are, most people don't give chickens outside of like people who work on farms or somehow keep chickens in their yard or something. Most people don't even give it a second thought. I think there's a great level of detachment between people and uh, animals and particularly animals that are used for food. You know, we, we don't see them and I think we don't see them on purpose in a lot of cases, because if we had to actually confront it and, and, you know, really lay eyes on, on the animals that we were eating, it might change the dynamic in ways that aren't entirely pleasant. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I was really surprised when I started researching chickens, just how little I actually knew. I, I think I, I thought that I understood what the situation was, um, being vegan and having at some point learned a little bit about this. But, um, but when I really started looking into it, it was, it, the situation was just so much darker than I even imagined. And, um, and I went to, uh, factory farms and interviewed farmers and, and things. And, uh, and it was really interesting because the farmers, I think I had expected them to be villainous or something, but they weren't at all. They were just really nice people and um, very honest and forthcoming and stuff. And they just happen to disagree. They just don't think that chickens are worthy of moral consideration for whatever reason. They just they just don't see it that way. They think chickens are are you know. I mean, the ones that I talked to are were Christian and just sort of felt like chickens are here for us to use and were given to us by God. And, um, you know, it, it was a it was very interesting. Well, I, I you know, I've talked to people like my mother uh, in law, who is no longer with us. She grew up on a farm. And I, I remember having conversations with her over the years about because, you know, I'm a vegetarian. My wife is a vegetarian. And she w would always tease us. And, you know, I talked to her about cows and don't you feel bad for the cows? And she's like, I grew up on a farm with cows. She's like, I couldn't care less. You know, like, I think maybe something about living around them might inure you or when you actually have to take care of them and deal with their poop and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Maybe it, I don't know, it changes your attitude. But uh, I fall on the side of things where I just can't help but imagine what it must be like to be a chicken in a factory farm stuck in a cage. Like that's where my mind goes. I'm just like, I can't get myself to a place where I feel okay about participating in this. Uh, and then, you know, so it's the suffering of the animal, which does matter to me. And I think speaking personally, that tends to be the place where when you're a vegan and you have to talk about it because people are asking you about it. Uh, that tends to be the place where you either get pushed back or you get laughed at a little bit for being too soft or something like that. And then uh, the other thing is, well, I guess there's lots of different things, but there's an ecological component as well. Like I think 
the, you know, my understanding is that by not participating in uh, the meat economy, you know, you're doing positive things for the climate in your tiny little way. Uh, but absolutely. I mean, can you talk about like the, the calculation for you? I mean, is it it's multifaceted in the way that it is for me? It's definitely multifaceted, but um, I primarily came to it as as I imagined, like you said, um, about chickens being in cages. And actually, I it was so accidental for me becoming a vegan because I was um, I ate everything, and I um, accidentally downloaded this podcast that I thought was about cooking, and it said something about cooking chickens. So I downloaded it, and. Um, and I listened to it, and it was actually about um, it was actually about um, about how chickens are treated. And I was so horrified that that I just thought, well, I, I guess I'll never eat chicken again. And I didn't. And then I listened to another pad, podcast by the same person, and it was, um, you know, um, it was on pigs. And I was like, well, I guess I'll never eat pigs again. And <laughs> who, who is this podcaster? <laughs> um, I don't even remember which one it was. I mean, there's so many now. but And then they had one on, like, how to get your calcium if you're a vegan. And, you know, all. so I just went through the podcast. And then, you know, within a month, I was, I was vegan. And that was just the end of it. Um, except for it did take me a while to get rid of, of stuff, you know, like, like, um, down jackets and things that took a little longer but this was all a really long time ago um but so it is definitely from that standpoint but then my 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 thinking about it has evolved over the years that it is also about the environment and it's also just about um like just just the human philosophy of ownership that we just own everything that we own, you know, we own, of course, we own all animals, we own the water and anything that's in the water, we own any piece of earth, we own even Mars, like we own everything, and that we can do anything that we want with it. And, and I, I guess I just, I guess I just don't, I don't agree with that philosophy. And so, so it isn't even a question of not treating chickens well, like, I don't, I just so I'm I'm not really like a welfareist. I just I just don't think that we have the right. Those chickens aren't ours, and none of this is ours. Like we're borrowing. I'm borrowing this house that I purchased. Um, so so I I feel so I try to. I mean, in the book, I don't I don't explicitly get into most of these things, but it's you know I don't. It's it's not at all. Um, you know, preachy, I don't think, but the, it is written from the point of view of, or at least some of the characters um, definitely feel are questioning this concept of ownership. Yeah. I mean, it's dicey territory, you know, when you start getting into this, I find, and maybe you've had a different experience, but I find that people are very emotional about food choice and about food in general. And over the years, uh, like if it ever comes up that I don't eat meat, which, you know, it sometimes does if you're at like a dinner, you're out to dinner and you're ordering off of a menu, for example, and I'll get stuff that doesn't have meat in it. And then somebody will be like, Oh wait, are you a vegetarian? I'll be like, Oh yeah. And then it suddenly it becomes like, 
12 angry men, you know, like, I'm just, <laughs> like, do you, do you have the same experience where you have to kind of litigate it for people? Like you're not even trying to, you're not preaching. You're not trying to push your views on anyone. You're just like, yeah. And then suddenly it's, you know, question after question, or people will hear that and then will suddenly start either like defending their own choice or interrogating it. Like, am I alone in this or is this? No, you are not alone. I've had that so many times. I mean, I mean, I think the worst was when I spent a couple weeks in um, Italy and I was staying with some people who were not at all vegan. And there I was, this lone vegan. And, you know, like even the pasta has egg in it. And it was just, and I don't speak Italian. And so it was hard to order. And I speak Spanish. Like I remember before I went, everyone said, you know what? You're, you speak so much Spanish. You're going to be fine. You're going to I was not fine. It was not that. It was not easy. So I had to keep depending on these non-vegan people to help me order in restaurants and things. And, and I was not preaching at all. I mean, I wasn't. Not even the slightest bit. But just they would just see me at the table and be enraged. You know, it was like. <laughs> It was so crazy. And it was like, at one point I just said, can we please just get through one meal without me having to defend my food choices for the entire meal? I just said that. And then I changed my ticket and flew home early because I just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. So I've had that. I, I've had that happen. I'm not as much in the United States, especially recently, because I feel like, first of all, I feel like anyone who knows me just knows I'm, I'm vegan. Um, and also, um, I just think that, I just think it's a little bit more common now than it used to be. Yeah. Maybe I'm yeah. I mean, I, I think it's definitely things that are moving slowly in this direction. Like if not completely, like just in a general way, you know, I think people are starting to recognize if, if like, like even if a person isn't necessarily on board with the, uh, the animal rights side of it or the ownership, uh, the philosophy of ownership that you were talking about, I think the science is pretty solid around, um, you know, what, uh, factory farming does for the environment, you know? And so even just reducing, uh, you know, intake can have a huge impact. So I think it's changing. And, uh, you know, I think that it's very personal, you know, everybody makes their choices. Like I'm the, I'm the grandson of a butcher. If, you know, just to show you, my parents come from Louisiana. So, you know, that culture doesn't, uh, take kindly to veganism or, or isn't necessarily like ready to embrace it with open arms. And so I've always been kind of the oddball and, Sometimes I wonder, like, am I just, you know, am I over, am I too sensitive? Am I, am I thinking this, you know, thinking about this too much? And, you know, I guess I never, I never get to the place where I can move off of it. It just feels like the right thing to do for me. Yeah. I mean, for me, I can't even imagine. It's so much just a part of who I am and a part of my life. I, I, I don't know how people say, oh, it's, it's so hard to be vegan. I can't believe how many times I've heard that it's so hard or, um, you know, I, I just, I couldn't give up cheese or, or something. I hear that so often and I, I never say anything, but I'm always just thinking like, it's actually so easy. You know, you just, you just go a couple of weeks. It's, it's incredibly easy. I don't even think about it anymore. It's just a part of my life at all times. It's just so, and I, I'm so relieved. It's not even healthy eat these big blocks of cheese and stuff. I used, even... to, I used to eat so much cheese. 
Uh, and this is something I, I often say too. People are like, what? You, you don't miss it or you didn't like it? And I was like, listen, I loved the taste of bacon. Bacon's great. It tastes great. Uh, at least to me it did. Uh, but I just I can't get over the pig thing, and you know the it's all the other stuff that I I can't get past. But it's not that it doesn't taste good. I think that that's a question I often get. Like you don't you don't think you don't like it? You don't think it tastes good? I'm like no, like steak tastes good, you know? Yeah, or, it does. It tastes great. Yeah. But I don't get to have anything I want any time. <laughs> I mean, I have some I have some self control, and I mean, yeah, I used to love bacon. But I, I really don't. And plus, today it's so easy. I mean, there's, you know, you walk into the grocery store and there's, you know, 20 different kinds of milk that are that are non-dairy, or there's, you know, 14 different kinds of cheese, and all of them are delicious. And okay, not all of them, but they're way better than they used to be. And there's so many different kinds. Like there's just the options are just crazy compared to when I first became vegan and all we had was soy milk. Right, right. Yeah, now you can get milk out of anything. It's like cashews, oats. Um, sunflower seed. I saw sunflower seed milk the other day. Whoa. Yeah, just, there's yeah. new ones coming online like every week, it feels like. We can milk this. We can make milk out of this. Yeah. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, so let's talk about the research process because this fascinates me. I had uh, I was under the impression, like some sort of general impression gleaned from whatever media I've consumed over the years around this topic, that getting access to factory farms and and factory farmers would not be easy because of the controversy. And how many, you know, like uh, gotcha videos have been smuggled out of there by, uh, you know, activists and so on and so forth. Like, was there any security protocol that you had to go through? Did you have to work at getting these relationships developed or was it pretty open, open door? No, it was a, it was like a 10 month fight to get onto the factory farm. Um, what I did was, um, I, you know, of course I was trying, but you can't even find the names of the farmers. Like you can't figure out a way to even call the places and ask, can I come for a visit? When you can't find the, 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 it's just, it's, it's extremely hidden. And so, um, one day I was doing research on my computer, trying, just going, looping through all the different egg places, um, that I could find just for the hundredth time, trying to figure out 
how to do this. And um, this thing popped up um, that said, um, there's going to be an egg conference. Do you want to go to this egg conference that's for food service people? So I clicked, yes, I would love to go as food service. And at the time, I was teaching at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And so I just typed in that I was food service from Wesleyan University. And um, the conference was in Michigan. So I went, and it was several days long. And it was um, there were a bunch of farmers from all over the country came. And, um, and then all of these food service people who were supposed to be just hearing about different ways. It was supposed to be trying to start combating some of the problems that people – um, that these egg farmers are having with, um, you know, with undercover investigators and, and stuff. So, you know, so they were presenting different kinds of cages and they were talking about different welfare protocols that they, you know, were using and stuff. And they had their own scientists and stuff. So I was there for, for days and you could tell the food service people who had actually come were so bored out of their minds. Like they could not believe that they had been sent here to witness this. But I was in the front row every day, you know, with my hand up, like with questions. And I was, and then like afterwards I was like asking the farmers if I could buy them a whiskey in the hotel lodge and all this. And so we ended up, um, so yeah, so I ended up and, and, you know, I just said I was, I was food service. Um, but that, you know, I was faculty, but that I was the faculty representative of food service. So, you know, it was a little, a little vague. Um, so then after I'd gone to the conference and I'd gotten to know all these farmers and on the last night I was like, I would love to come visit your farms. You know, it would be so wonderful. And by that time they just liked me and they were like, yeah, you can come. Sure. And, um, then I called Harper's and said, um, I'd really like to write like an undercover piece, like a, not an undercover, a, an investigative piece on the egg industry. Um, I had done stuff with them before various things and I knew they, they, they had asked me if I had any ideas. So, um, so then I had this plan and that way I could have excuse to do all of this research, um, but now I was officially a journalist, so I had to come clean with the farmers because you know you can't you can't lie if you're a journalist, and um, that's not really ethical. So I so I told them, and then all of them said I couldn't come after all. But then one guy, he was like, you know, he was a young farm. Most of them were old, like older, um, maybe like my parents' age or something. But there was this one guy who was young, younger than me. And he had just kind of been put in charge of this for some reason. And, and he was like, I'd love to let you come, but you know, I could really get in a lot of trouble and all this. And I just kept calling him and talking to him and needling him. And, you know, finally he said, okay, come. So, so I went and he, and it was just, just like giant, giant farm and it was incredible. It where, was, where was it? What state? Um, it was in Michigan. Oh. It was right near where the conference had been, which by the way, I ate eggs and everything during the conference because they kept bringing us meals and stuff and I didn't want to be like, well, I'm a vegan, you know, <laughs> so I just ate all of it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you get in situations like I talked about Louisiana earlier it's like if I'm staying at somebody's house, especially, or if I'm like a guest somehow in that 
role. I have a really hard time being like, by the way, would you mind making me a special plate? <laughs> you know, like sometimes, uh, sometimes you just have to, I mean, if you have, I don't know, I guess it depends on circumstance, but I totally get it. You know, like you being there, like, what are you, what are you going to do? You know? Well, okay. So in that circumstance, the one that you just described going to a friend's house for, even if I'm staying with them or whatever, there's no, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't eat it. Like I would warn them far in advance and like offer to bring food or, or buy things or something, um, or cook. Um, but in this case it was like, um, I was supposed to be food service and they were presenting on eggs and they, they spent most of their time talking about these pesky vegan crazy people who were trying to shut down their business you know <laughs> so I couldn't just sit there and be like oh that is so interesting you know tell me more and by the way I'm vegan can I have something else to eat you know I couldn't so I was I was kind of hiding a little bit did so. you did you get sick or did you what was it like if you've been vegan for a long time uh you know to oh, nah I'm pretty hearty yeah it, it, it tasted much worse than I remembered I was kind of excited. I was like, man, I used to love eggs. This is going to be great. But they were kind of rubbery and uh, they, they weren't as good as I thought they would be. So so I didn't, yeah, I didn't get sick. So you go to Michigan, you go to this farm and what changed for you in terms of your understanding of, um, you know, factory farming, big, what do they call it? Big ag or big agribusiness. Mm -hmm. uh, to actually see it from the inside out, like what was that like and what did you come away with? It was pretty intense because, I mean, the whole time that I had been trying to get into the farm, I'd also been interviewing undercover investigators who had gone into the farms and they'd been telling me about them and they provided me with their raw footage. So I'd been watching many, many hours of raw footage of inside the barns. Um, so... By the time I actually got into the barns, it was it was pretty intense. Um, I felt like I had spent so many months just building up to this moment, you know, that I could go into the barn. And um, so when I finally went in, I was well, I was I was really surprised by the smell. The farm smelled so terrible. Going up to it, I I was pretty shocked that people could actually go to work there every day. Um, but then um, inside the barns, they, they were, I went inside several. I had them take me into several of the barns. And the ones with the youngest chicks, the little little tiny ones, um, they were still really sort of like uh, white and clean and adorable and, and, and fuzzy and, and funny. And then by the time we got to the oldest barns, because you have to go in from youngest to oldest um, for uh, for sanitary reasons, for safety for the chickens, um, I the chickens were so kind of torn apart, like they had they had so many bald spots on them, and they were their combs they were tall they were taller so their combs were kind of sticking out of the cage and so they couldn't really stand up straight and they were um it was just it was pretty it was pretty hard to see and there was so much so much shit everywhere 
Can I say that? Yeah, it's, a podcast. Yeah, it's fine. It was so much shit just covering everything. Like it was just building up and it's not just shit. It's also like dander and feed. Like it all kind of gets mashed together because there's these giant fans that are blowing, blowing through. Um, and it just, blows the feed and the shit and the, the the little fluffy feathers and everything and and it just covers everything and this like statues just covering the cages and it's all over the walls and and there's like flies everywhere it's just in the older barns in you know, the barns with the older chicks there were just so many flies just flying around in my face and I mean it was it's pretty intense. I mean, really. And the noise is incredible. The noise is like, it just, I can't even describe the sound of 150,000 birds. They're just, it just sounds like this roiling, moaning, groaning kind of sound. That's, um, it's, it was, it was very, it felt, it felt intense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it doesn't sound appetizing. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and then there are these eggs that are like floating through because the eggs they they come you know the, the 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 chicken lays the egg and then it rolls to the front of the cage and out onto these conveyor belts and then the they travel on these conveyor belts so as you're walking through there are these eggs that are like floating alongside you traveling you know to the consumer and you're just like ooh gross oh my god like floating out of the shit <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question here because I wrestle with this. My son uh, has some health challenges, and his neurologist was like, you know, you should feed him eggs. I think his pediatrician said this too, because of protein and it does something, you know. And when you're a parent and your kid has a health issue, like you know, at least for me, I'm like, I'll feed him anything if it helps. I don't care what it is. Like, I will hunt wild boar if my son, uh, you know, will improve because of, uh, you know, because of it for some reason. And so, taking that in, into account, and then trying to balance it uh, against my uh, vegan tendencies and my love of animals and so on, we try to get like, uh, what is it, organic pastured eggs, like so the chickens are pastured. And so I'm like, okay, well, at least like they get to, you know, they're raised on grass and they have like a cleaner and more natural environment. And, uh, but then I Google it and it's like pastured is bullshit. Like they're still suffering. And, you know, I guess they always kill the roosters. I, I, I don't know. Like, I guess my question is, did you learn anything about humane farming? Uh, is there any such thing when it comes to using animals for food? So I learned a lot about it because I wrote that piece for Harper's and, um, I, you know, I, I fully understand that thing of like, my son must have protein, you know, like, I mean, it, that's just so natural. Um, and so sincere and comes from such a, a like a good hearted place. And, um, I don't have kids, but I know I would be that way for sure. I would be like, I don't care where the eggs come from. I know I would be like that if I were in that circumstance. Um, I, um, I mean, like, I do wonder, like, there's so many different sources of protein in the world. I just wonder if, if really eggs are the only kind of protein that would help him. Yeah, yeah, but, me, me too. But it's like, I've got doctors telling me this. And I just like, I guess at a certain point, because we have so many doctors and so many bits of information coming at us, they're like, you know, 
his doctor and like uh, i could go on about this but when it comes to doctors and food do you ever notice that like most doctors don't say anything to you about diet like you go to see your general practitioner and unless you i guess shop around and find one who's really invested like i've never had a doctor in a physical be like so what are you eating <laughs> you know like it seems like the most <laughs> elemental thing to ask and to like know about but uh, it doesn't seem like it's integrated into our medical school or medical system, you know, unless you're like really concentrated on it, uh, you know, as a specialty. But anyway, uh, I digress. I've had that same thought and I guess I could investigate it further. I, I certainly don't feel protein deficient and uh, I don't eat meat. So, you know, well, I mean, if he needs protein, then there, I mean, if he needs more protein, then he needs more protein. It's just that there are so many great kinds like, um, like, um, you know, tofu has a much more complex protein than a lot of different kinds of protein. Like my sister's kids really need protein and she, and she's not at all, she's not vegetarian, but, um, her doctor told her that the best protein that they could be eating is, um, is a complex protein like, um, tofu. So that's why I was just wondering like, why, like, what is it that eggs have more than any other thing like omega threes or you know i don't know yeah maybe maybe i mean but okay so let's say that eggs are the only thing like you know what are you going to do i mean yeah you know like you're going to have to just you know do it for as long as he needs them probably um i would say but i would do more research but i mean i do think i, I do think that a lot of the pasteurized i mean i can't i i feel so i can't believe this is going to go out over the airways because this whole conversation because i i don't want to sound like like a crazy vegan activist <laughs> at all because i'm really not um no one's going to believe that once they hear this but i mean it is true that a lot of those organic fact those organic farms if they're big ones are terrible they're just they still do the debeaking. They still kill off the chickens once they are finished with their first lay, which is, you know, they, they're probably only like 18 months old or less, maybe even only 12 months old. And uh, you know what? I want to stop you. When you say debeaking, you mean they, they actually cut the beaks off the birds? They cut, they cut part of the beak. Like they don't cut the whole face off, but they cut like uh, a portion, then, which is that's like cutting off to our, our fingers, to our first, to our first knuckle, because chickens use their beaks the way that we use our fingers. Like they explore with them and they defend with them and they, um, it's pleasurable for them to poke at the ground with them. And that's of course how they eat and drink. And, um, and it's, they don't use, the farmers don't use any anesthesia or anything. It's an extremely painful experience. And so, so yeah, so they do this ridiculous thing where they, you know, cut their beaks off and, um, you know, and they, and they kill them at a very young age and they're still overcrowded. And a lot of them don't even, they have access to the outdoors, but that doesn't actually mean that they go out there. There's just like a little tiny door that they could go out and then they're on cement. And, um, and there's like a, there's like a, a, a cage all the way around the cement so that they won't, you know, jump out or anything. So, and there's nothing really out there for them. And it's scary because they don't, they're never out there. So they don't, they might, you know, one might poke its head out and then run back inside. So, but you can find places. I mean, you, you know, there are places, there are farmers, there are people who really want to have the kinds of eggs 
um, that you are talking about. Like I here in Austin, there are a bunch of them. In fact, I was just at a farm yesterday where um, the woman has just she's just got like chickens just like running around and they're her friends and she knows all their names and they get to live you know their whole lives and she sells their eggs um so you know so you have to do some research and find those um and that's what i would probably do in your in your circumstance yeah i mean you know it's like i just anything bought at the store like that says like the, you know the girls are on grass what what's the name of the brand i forget what the name of the brand is they're they're really expensive too <laughs> so i'm like if they're this expensive they have to be humane but you never know and you know unless somebody goes and visits the farm and actually verifies it yeah i mean i'm so crazy about this stuff cuz you know cuz like i like i i told you i mean i don't i don't think that we have i don't think that animals are ours to use so because I have such a strong view about that, I, I would probably go to the farm. I mean, maybe you could all go to the farm, just go like, it could be like an adventure, you know, you go to the farm and you see like, where's our food coming from? Let's just make sure that this is cool. Another thing is you can get your own chickens, you know, and then just like keep them as your friends. I I mean, I would not be opposed. Like I could, I could get down with a chicken coop. I think my wife might be, I might have to work on that one. Like I'll have to negotiate for a, a while. <laughs> but I mean, first of all, I would research and make sure that the absolute only way that he could get whatever it is that he needs. I mean, I've never even heard that before, that the only thing that you can get that you can get to fulfill your protein needs is eggs. I don't know. It's just, you know, it's just a, I, we just had a doctor look at us and be like, you've got to feed him eggs, you know? And, we're just like paranoid. We're like, okay, like what, whatever he needs, you know, it's like one of those things. Yeah, I understand. I do. I really do understand. Uh, so I want to ask you about the, the, like the nuts and bolts work of drafting this novel, because, you know, you mentioned, um, either before we started, uh, taping or, or early on that you worked longer on this book than you have on any of the other five that you've written. And that, you know, probably took a lot out of you, it took a lot of time and effort. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, God, this is a heavy lift, um, precisely because of all the research that one would have to do, presumably, unless you grew up um, on a farm or, or spent time working in the industry somehow. And then secondly, in order to convincingly plot your narrative and to put together a chicken heist on one of these farms that feels real and believable, um, you know, that part of it to me seemed like very labor intensive and, uh, you know, am I, am I barking up the right tree here? Is that correct? I mean, that it seems, sounds like you certainly put in a ton of time and energy to try to get your facts straight and to build this thing. Yeah. Like I really, if I was going to do it, I wanted to do it in such a way that it could actually happen. And for a long time I was thinking, oh, no one would ever do this, you know? But then when I met all of these undercover investigators and start and met all of these activists and started talking to them, I realized, oh, if they got it into their heads, these people, they are so determined. They're just, they are, they're so kind of crazy even that if they wanted to do this, they would do it. I mean, I have no doubt that if they, I mean, I don't think they would ever want to do it. I don't think they would see a reason to do it, but 
if they wanted to, they could, I would believe that they could do it. And then I, so then I was like, okay, so now I just have to figure out how. So that was, that was a very, that was labor intensive, just figuring out mechanically, how would it work? Like how, how many trucks would they need? How many chickens would need to be in each truck? How long, how many hours, how many people would they need? Could they do it in this amount of time? And, and I really, really didn't want to cheat. Um, I did cheat a tiny bit, but not much. I mean, really not much. Like they probably would have needed a few more trucks ultimately. Um, so that, wait, so that was the cheat. You just had like a, a lower number of trucks. Yeah. I mean, I think it it would have been hard to do it with just 60 trucks. It probably would have needed a few more trucks than that. But, um, but it was just, it was so many trucks and I was just like, where in the world are they going to get all these trucks? I mean, and the trucks are really expensive. And I was like, well, so let's see, what if Janie, you know, so I started thinking like if Janie worked for a trucking company, but then like, you know, so just, but then I was like, but there's no way, you know, I don't, I just, I don't believe that she's going to be able to find, you know, more than 60 trucks. Like, I just, I can't believe, I mean, even 60 trucks, there's just no way. So I was like, well, you know what? So, okay. So it's just 60 trucks, but probably it would have been a few more trucks than that. And so let's talk about animal activism. And if, if you, I want to know if your research took you into those realms. I mean, you talk about these investigators who I suppose would presumably be tied to those kinds of organizations and collective efforts. But, um, you know, when I think about like eco-terrorism or like people who, who really put their bodies on the line and their lives on the line in some cases to try to protect the oceans and, um, protect animals, you know, did you, uh, come across people like that? Did you meet with them or talk to them or do deep research in that department? Oh yeah. I did a ton of research in it. Um, yeah. Um, those people are really interesting to me. And I mean, the undercover investigators, um, these are people who they, they, they are crazy. I mean, they give up their lives, whatever their life is, they give it up. They're not allowed to tell their, their families or their friends or anybody what they're doing. So they have to sort of create like a fake, a a fake thing that they're doing. It's like the CIA. Um, It's like the CIA. Yeah, it's like the CIA. Yeah. And they have to sort of keep updating their Facebook posts with, you know, the fun time they're having in Chile or whatever. And, um, and then they have to live alone in these disgusting motel rooms and go do these jobs that, that they are, you know, that they've stopped, stopped their whole lives just to stop. And, um, and they have to, you know, do these actions that they consider to be terrible and um and it's hard work it's brat it's backbreaking work um and they um and then they have to be afraid all the time that they might get caught they have to wear these wires um and so they have to be trained in how to use secret cameras and and all kinds of stuff i mean it's it's really intense and so they they do think like they study the art of war um they um, they get all kinds of special training. Um, they have to do all kinds of physical training. It's, it's a really intense, it's very intense. Um, and, 
and they and then when they're done you know at some point they just kind of break down a lot of them and they and they they leave and i think it takes them many years to recover it's like, it's like it's like war it's like they have ptsd or something almost yeah it is it is and um, don't they have laws like don't these big um you know like factory farming conglomerates or um, agribusinesses don't they have or haven't they successfully lobbied state governments to to pass laws that make it illegal to tape and to show what happens at these farms right they have they have blinders on like a like legally yeah. gag laws there's gag laws so they're um in a lot of states not every state but in most states now um you if you are caught um, doing that, being an undercover investigator and recording on the farms, I mean, you know, you can go to prison for that. Um, so, so they're, you know, and, and, and I, I talked to some who had made the decision to go to those states and do it anyway. Like they had decided, you know, okay, it's time for me to up the ante. I'm ready to take a bigger risk, you know, for the sake of this cause. Um, I also talked to, before the, the undercover investigator model is actually pretty new, um, starting up like around, I don't know, maybe like 2010 or something. I don't remember anymore. But um, And before that, there was in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, um, there were the ALF, the Animal uh, Liberation Front. And those were people who felt that what we should do is um, take action against these farms by um, doing things like um, b- blowing up their trucks or um, setting fire to their offices and, and things like that. So I interviewed some of those people too, and some of them had been had been to prison and were now out. Um, so that was all really interesting as well. I think also in this country, we're moving away a little bit from the undercover investigator model. A lot of these models of all the different kinds can't last for very long because the industry figures out what to do about it, and then they have to move on. So I think that that is happening now um, in just the last couple of years to the to the undercover investigators. Do you think that there's ever going to be a time on Earth when human beings don't treat animals this way? Probably not. I mean, probably not. I, I would like to think so. We haven't always treated them this badly. Like we haven't, we haven't kept this many in a box, but maybe because we, we didn't know how, and now we know how, um, that's such a sad question. But I mean, you got to ask it, right? It's like, what is, I mean, at, at some point, like maybe at some point, you know, there could be some consensus around climate science and we could say, hey, you know, even if you don't stop altogether, if you just like cut it and cut your intake in half or cut it by however high, you know, you can cut it, we'll be able to, to, you know, save some forests and keep the temperature from going up another degree or whatever, you know, that... Maybe that could motivate people, but I wonder this sometimes. Like, are we really just like this twisted of a species where we're just like, yeah, we're just gonna we're gonna take it all. It's all ours, and who cares how much they suffer? They taste good. 
Yeah, it's very weird, isn't it? It seems um, to me, yeah. I I guess that I feel like I can imagine a time when we decide to cut consumption in half and when a lot of people get on board with that. Um, and I can imagine, you know, for all kinds of reasons, you know, for health reasons, for the environment. Um, I can't imagine a time, and I can even imagine a time when we take some welfare actions such as something that's become very popular in the United States is um, the cage-free egg, um, which there's, you know, you'll see more and more of that now, the cage-free egg, which does give the chicken a tiny bit more room. But I can't see a time when we're not ultimately thinking, when companies aren't ultimately thinking about the bottom line and, you know, you can't have chickens running around in forests and all over the land and expect everyone to be able to get an egg um, because it's just that is such a and that's such an inconvenient way to get an egg so so I, I think that chickens will always be in spaces that are far too small and um, will not we're not going to have there's not going to be a time when chickens are treated well I don't think hmm. but I would I wish that they would be I feel really sad about that. I mean, maybe like 500 years from now or something, you know, but we won't be around to see it. Maybe in 500 years. Do you think we'll still be around in 500 years, I humans? Mean, who knows? Maybe it's a very small subset of the human population that finally like goes, oh, yeah, the older generations really fucked it up. Let's try a new way. <laughs> That's a nice thought. <laughs> right? Be like, there'll be like 10,000 human beings left, like trying to do a do-over, you know, or something. But... um why barn eight? I'm just curious about the number eight. Did you did you have like something? Do you have any kind of like fixation on that number, or is that just the way it landed? Did it just sound the best? I mean, it landed that way because of the calculations that I was trying to make. Because I was trying to figure out, you know, how like it was so much of me figuring out about the numbers. You know, like what, um, how many could they could they realistically gather in one night, and then what number would be just a little too much for them to gather in one night. Um, and so, and you know, since I knew how many investigators approximately I could count on there being alive in the country at any one time, retired or not, and I knew how many chickens there are in a barn, um, I landed on that. I mean, I think that something that's a little bit unrealistic in the book is that a million chickens on a barn is actually very, very, I mean, and a farm is actually a very few number of chickens. Um, even small farms have at least 2 million chickens. So it's a little bit small of a farm. I mean, I'm sure that there are still farms that have just a million chickens um, or a million point two is in the book. Um, so it's a little, it's a little small. Um, but I, I, I love the was... idea. I love the idea of you doing all this chicken math as you're trying to <laughs> put this thing together. <laughs> uh, you don't like most books do not require this much math. Let's just put it, you know, that's why we write books because we don't like math, but you did a lot of math for this. It was hard. I'm not very good at math. And there were a couple times when I, when I would do the math and I'd be like, Oh, this all works. This is great. I've got it. And then I would realize, Oh, I made a, a, a really stupid math mistake here and it's all messed up. What about, what about like, so people listening at home, uh, who, who probably eat eggs and, you know, don't think anything of it. 
like I guess just as a matter of curiosity, you talk about uh, even a small farm having two million chickens on it. Like how many eggs per chicken per day? Like what is what is the actual production math look like for your average farm? So chickens will lay eggs. I think it's like one every thirty-two hours. The way so it used to be chickens before. Um, be- like before the last century, chickens would lay eggs in the spring, and then they would raise their chicks in the summer, and then they would molt in the fall, and they would just rest in the winter, and then in the spring they would start laying eggs again. So it was only when we figured out that if you keep shining light on a hen, that she will think that it's still spring, and she will keep laying eggs. So um, that's one reason, you know, we never we never used to have the number of eggs that we have now. We had used to eat very very few. Eggs were a delicacy. That's why I think about your son. Like, why is it only eggs? Because eggs used to be such a delicacy. Usually, you know, humans would only have like a few eggs a year, basically. So um, you know what? Too like and something else that comes to mind as you say that is that lobster used to be prison food. Yeah, lobster used to be prison food. It's true. And, yeah. Yeah. And like I remember like now it's considered like, you know, it's served at country clubs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um so so on a on an industry farm, um, chickens lay eggs. I think it's I think that it's like once every either like twenty eight hours or every thirty two hours, something like a little bit over once a day. Um and if so if you have two million chickens or a lot of a lot of farms have 20 million, you know, they're just these like vast, just house up, you know, just these giant barns, just barn after barn after barn after barn. You know, you can see them when you fly, you can look down and see, um, these huge. So, I mean, so they're shipping, I mean, they're shipping like 20 million eggs every 35 hours, you know, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. That's crazy to think about because I'll walk through a grocery store and uh and just marvel and be like where the hell does all of this come from like how is there enough you know for all the human beings but you know you put it into that context and it's just one farm that's generating millions and millions of eggs uh pretty much every day right and that's yeah every day and then um and then they and then they're exhausted the chickens and then they're yeah so that's what happens so how many years did it take you to write this book Well, I started it in 2011, but I didn't work on it that whole time. I kept quitting. I published two other books in between. So, like, I quit to finish Wait Till You See Me Dance, which was my story collection, and then I quit um, to finish I Parrot, which is a graphic novel. Um, You know, so, and then I just quit because I just couldn't do it or I didn't know what I was doing. So, um, so it was, so it was, it was a good, what is that? Eight years. I turned it in the manuscript last year. So it was, it's like eight years, but, um, but I wasn't working on it the whole time. So, so let's talk about when you quit and then what brought you back to it. Because I think a lot of people out there have been in that situation or currently find themselves in that situation where you're just kind of, you sort of had it with a manuscript and you feel stuck and it feels potentially, um, like unsolvable. So can you get into that a little bit more and what happened? Yeah, I mean, that happened to me 
a lot. That happened to me all the time. Um, in, that I would just run into a wall and just quit and then slowly find my way back to it. And then at some point I had, I was far enough in the manuscript that even if it had this fatal flaw, I was going to have to figure it out because I'd come so far with the damn thing. And it just, I, I would just tell myself, well, look, I have no choice. I have to finish it at this point. I've got to finish it. Um, so I think it's really, I, I feel like novels are, um, they're so interesting because they're usually inspired by one thing, like a phrase or an image or something. Anytime I talk to a novelist, they're always like, yeah, I got this image in my mind of something and then I couldn't get it out. And then I had to spend like the next five years, you know, writing the thing to get that image out of my mind. And so what I love about a novel is that it's actually, it's like the human mind is so complicated. And in order to express one image that gets stuck in your mind, you have to write this entire 300 pages, you know, to get through it. And, and I just, I love that complexity, especially now when I feel like I'm being asked to simplify everything like or not like it or you know just dumb down everything about my brain in so many ways and so just the relief of a novel and being able to just say yes it's that complicated it's that hard to explain it that I have to spend 300 pages trying to get to it um so that's inspiring and that that is one thing that kept bringing me back was like, I want to explain it. I want to get to that image. I want to get to that feeling, the thing that I want to express. And then what about characters? Because you have a great kind of like motley crew of characters that you uh, have invented. It's sort of, I mean, this is kind of a crude comparison, but it sort of reminds me like of that old show, the A-Team. Remember that show? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that was before your time, but when I was well, a kid. No, I never saw that show. I think I've heard of it. The thing that people keep saying is, um, which I also haven't seen, but I have to. There's a movie called, I think it's called Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, Ocean yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that. It's like that. You know, like sort of like a heist, but also yeah. like some sort of kind of like a covert military operation um, you know, procedural almost, you know, there's elements of like, there's procedural element to your novel where, you know, they're trying to, to pull off this really, um, improbable feat. And, uh, you know, in order to work with a cast that large, like I can imagine that adds time and effort, uh, in considerable amounts when you're trying to write, like it's, it's hard, the more characters you have to build and they all have to have their moment and they all have to kind of, find a certain symbiosis together like did that present challenges did you wind up having to combine characters or cut some or did you wind up adding no i mean what i wanted i knew from the start that i wanted it to be there was that there was this one event and then we're leading up to the event and then away from the event but the whole book is just this one night this one 12 hour period that that's what it was all going to circle around and I wanted it to have this very kind of cubist feel where you're looking at it from all these different perspectives and from all these different points of view and from all these different points in time. You know, like I go 
way far back in the past, you know, to the origin of chickens. I go 20,000 years into the future. Um, I do all of these different things to, um, to try to make it. And I, so I, I really wanted it from the beginning. I wanted it to feel like, you know, like you're kind of being lulled into first there's first you get the first character for 30 pages. Then you get the next character for like 25 pages and then you get another character for 18 pages. So it's like, and then you finally, you arrive at the sort of crescendo of all these voices that are swirling around during this 12 hour period. And then you move away from it and the, then you start getting a little bit longer again. You have a couple, just as you, as the book is winding down, you have a couple places where you're getting, you know, one character for eight or nine pages, you know? Um, so, so I worked hard. I knew I wanted it to look like that. And, uh, and I worked hard to do it. Well, and what about like san- animal sanctuaries? Cause it's one thing to, to heist a million chickens. It's another thing to like find some place for them. Like <laughs> you can't just drive around forever with them and, loaded into a truck like in your research um when you were talking to these investigators and people who work on the front lines of the animal rights movement uh, i imagine you probably learned about sanctuary farms or places where animals that have been suffering uh under extremely harsh conditions in industrial farming can go to sort of like retire and and have some some uh you know humane conditions for the rest of their lives yeah, yeah. I um I went to visit a whole bunch of them. Um and just I mean, so I went to visit, you know, seven or eight in different places all around the country. And um and I just went and, and just uh hung out on them and spent a lot of time with the chickens and there was one place that had an Airbnb, so I just not an Airbnb that a what is the other word for Airbnb hotel? I just went and stayed at a hotel on, on the air, like a bed and breakfast on the property. So you could like wake in the morning and hear them crowing and, and stuff. And, um, and then, um, another one, um, I got married during this time that I was doing the research and uh, the early. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, we'd been together for so many years. It was just, it was, uh, we just, we had a very, very long courtship. (laughs) Um, and so the people who came were not vegan, obviously most of them. And so just my husband and I are the only vegans. So we had a vegan wedding, but we got, um, we got animals from the animal farms from the sanctuaries we got sponsorships for all the guests so that when they sat down at their table they had like a picture of a chicken on their at their plate but it was a it was like a it was like a a chicken that they were sponsoring now from one of these farms so that was fun how did people react well my sister became vegan for about three months so that was really fun um, yeah, no, people loved it. I mean, it was people who already knew us really well and were, you know, expecting something like that. Nobody thought they were going to show up and have chicken on their plates um, that they would eat. Well, see, that's so, the thing. Like, that, yeah. like, I kind of admire that because I feel like I would I mean, I guess I would never I wouldn't know until I was actually going through it. But I always feel like, oh, well, if I'm hosting people, they might want to have a hot dog or something. Oh, gross. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I never done that, but I'm just thinking like, 
I don't know. Like, I guess I would feel like, uh, am, am I, am I imposing my diet on other people? But I guess it's your wedding. I mean, right. They totally. Got- no, I feel no compunction about any of that. I mean, the truth is that this, the, that stuff's not good for you. It's not good for you physically. It's, it's not nice to the world. I mean, you know, we're imposing ourselves on the chickens. I mean, that my guests are definitely not more important than, than, than any other animal on the planet. So, yeah, so I have no compunction about that, but I don't know. And I don't, I don't really think anyone who I, who I would bring around would feel that way. I mean, people know me well enough to not expect that. I mean, plus like we try to be generous. My husband and I, when, if we go out to dinner with people who, um, aren't vegan and we're forcing them to go to a vegan restaurant, we'll just buy the meal for everybody. We'll just be like, guess what? We're buying meal for everybody. Get all the drinks you want. Let's get wine or whatever. Or if we're going to someone's house, we'll cook food and bring it or whatever. Like we try to be, you know, nice about it. Like low impact vegans. Like, Yeah. I mean, we don't have kids and we have jobs. We're fine. So if we, you know, buy dinner for everybody, it's no big deal. What about, uh, what about like being in a relationship? Because you mentioned that your husband is vegan. Did he go vegan when you went vegan or after or before? And would you have a problem with him if he wasn't vegan? (laughs) So yeah, he went vegan about a year after I did, or maybe 10 months or something after I did. It was just like, um, we'd already been together for several years and suddenly there I was a vegan and he was like, what's going on? You know, we've never done that before. And it just kind of took him a while to get on board. Um, and it was mostly just, we would just be eating meals together and I would just tell him what he was eating on his plate. (laughs) And then he would say, okay, I guess I'm just not going to eat that anymore. So it took, it didn't take him very long. Also, I will say that he doesn't, um, he thinks that, um, oysters are, uh, fine to eat because they don't have brains or nervous systems. So he still eats oysters. Yeah. I've heard that. I've heard that, uh, before I have like a, a non meat eating person who's like, yeah, mollusks and oysters and like mussels, uh, yeah. for precisely that reason. Now, where do you fall on it? You're still like, listen, they might not have a brain, but we don't own them. Yeah, I mean, I guess I I feel like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess I I don't really know for sure. I I never ate any. I never ate oysters anyway, so it wasn't an issue for me um, when he decided he was going to go ahead and eat those. I mean, I I don't care if he eats them, and but I don't have strong feelings about it. Um, I mean, you know, when I think about it, I mean, I wish I didn't. You know, I wish I didn't even have to eat like plants, you know, I mean, I don't own plants either. Right. But, yeah. Um, and then people, cause sometimes people will come at me and they'll be like, well, wait, you know, they say plants have consciousness too, or whatever, you know, yeah, like sometimes people will make that argument or how do you know that they, that they're not mad that you're cutting them down. And I guess like w- where I fall on it is that when you harvest a plant, for sustenance, it doesn't try to run away from you in terror. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, cause if you like, g- you know, go try to grab a chicken sometime, uh, or go try to chase down a cow with a, uh, air gun and see how it goes for you, you know? And I just think that, uh, that's the differentiating factor for me. 
Well, yeah, there is definitely that. They don't run screaming. But also, you know, a cow, in order to sustain itself, has to eat a huge amount of plants. It's very inefficient. So um, so if I eat a cow, I'm eating so many more plants than I would be if I just eat the plants. I mean, just the amount of pound to pound um, or calorie to calorie um, is the, the difference is so extreme. Well, that, yeah, that's like, that's the climate argument. I mean, or like the bulk of the climate argument has to do with cattle grazing because, you know, like an acre of land that you use to graze cattle for, for, um, meat produces like far less edible food for people than and that same acre of land. If you're using it to, you know, grow rice or corn or something like that. And so, uh, I think like, I didn't realize this until I started doing the reading and watching videos and stuff that like, you know, the, the reason like the big, or at least one of the big, uh, issues around food and climate is that they have to cut down all these forests to create grazing land for cattle that can then be used for meat. So they're just deforesting the entire planet so that people can have hamburgers. I know it's, it's so ridiculous. So, yeah. So. Yeah. So I don't know, I like it's, uh, you know, it's, I, I feel like I'm getting preachy, but it just seems like common sense. I mean, we're all in the same boat. Like if somebody's got like a better, if somebody's got like an answer that makes sense, that, that, uh, somehow flies in the face of what I'm saying, like I, I'm open to it, but it just seems like common sense to me. Like we got to stop cutting down all the trees. <laughs> yeah, completely. I mean, I have some hope in these Petri dish meats that they're growing, you know, I mean, I definitely don't need, I just, I just don't, I don't need meat. I don't care about meat, but I know people have such an emotional commitment to them and they're growing now, you know, they, they're starting to grow these Petri dish meats. I don't know. Maybe that will, maybe that will help a little. Yeah. I, I don't have a lot of hope for humanity. I got to say, I, I don't think that we're going to become better people. Um, like we're, I, we're just we're just fundamentally flawed. We got like it's just we got bad wiring. We got bad wiring. Yeah, we have bad wiring. And and I am not at all saying that I'm some sort of saint just because I don't eat just because I'm vegan. I mean, I don't I'm vegan not because I'm trying to save humanity or save the planet necessarily. It's just that I can't participate in that level of violence. But, you know, like I was saying, I I was doing an interview the other day and there I was sitting there, you know, talking about this very thing. And there I was sitting there with a, with a freaking plastic bottle in my hand, you know, like, just like, I mean, it's just so I'm, I'm looking right now around my house and I'm looking at the hand sanitizer in a plastic bottle and, and look at this giant house that I live in when there are so many people who, you know, have, um, you know, who don't have homes. And I mean, I am guilty. I'm so guilty. How big, My... how big of a house are you in? Like, this is like a 7,000 square foot house or? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. It's, it's a, we, we have, we have a two bedroom. No, actually it's a three bedroom house. Yeah. So, um, you know, we both have an office and, and then we have our bedroom, but, um, you know, there's two of us and we have a three bedroom house. For example, I mean, I have a car. I have, um, I, I mean, I'm not going on book tour, but I had every intention of going on book tour and flying all over the country, you know, in an airplane. I mean, 
I'm guilty. I'm so guilty. I just can't take part in that particular form of violence of eating animals in that way. Yeah. Everybody, everybody has their line, I guess, you know, um, or some people maybe don't have much of a line at all, but I'm in the same boat. You know, I just, I can't get it out of my head. I, sometimes I wish I could in some ways, but I can't, uh, I can't get the, I can't get like the actual picture of the animal out of my head. And my wife who went vegetarian when she was nine did it after being at school and like watching like one of these, like, you know, supposedly innocuous videos of like how, how does the, you know, let's, let's go visit a farm and find out how the eggs get to your table. And she, she watched it when she was nine and she was like, uh, uh-uh, I'm done. That's it. <laughs> and her, her parents thought she was nuts. You know, she's like raised in the Midwest and they just had no, there was no vegetarianism in their family. And that was it for her. She, she never went back. Wow. That's cool. I wish I could say that I had done that, but I didn't. Yeah. Me neither. Me neither. You know, it wasn't until I was older, but, um, so you're living in Austin. Mm-hmm. And I think you, I think you were living there last time I spoke with you. I'm trying to re- trying to recall, but how long you been there? Uh, it seems like a nice place to be. It's a great place to be. Yeah, we got here in like maybe it was 2014, I think. Um, and yeah, it's beautiful. It's it's a really nice place to be, especially right now. It's just it seems like there's nobody here. <laughs> I mean, it's just so quiet. I mean, this place is just really quieted down. Yeah, well, I mean, Los Angeles has too. I mean, like I, I was riding my bike yesterday and like the roads were mostly empty. I was like, this is fantastic. I could get used to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. It's filling up fast. There's a lot, a lot of people are moving here. Um, but, um, yeah, it's 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 really it's really nice. Yeah, that's amazing about LA. I can't even imagine the empty roads. I mean, highways. Are there empty are the highways not full of traffic? I mean, they they have there are plenty of cars, don't get me wrong, but like not to the level that we're used to. So even like a even like a a moderate decrease seems like a miracle where you're like, "Oh my god, like things are moving. You know, there's some space." <laughs> Yeah. Uh, um, and I ride my bike all over the, all over the city, which is weird. Um, very few people do that, but you know, it can get kind of dicey in heavy traffic when you're weaving in and out of cars and you know, there's like a, there's like three feet of clearance between you and a car that's going like 50 miles an hour. <laughs> Whoa, that's, you're so crazy. Don't do that. <laughs> Come on. I'm trying to save the planet, Deb. Yeah. Uh, what part of LA do you live in? Uh, you know, like sort of Hollywood. There's no middle, but I, you know, it depends how well you know it. Um, but just kind of, yeah, just sort of like right in the middle of the chaos, um, more or less, but I'm not on the coast or anything. So, you know, we, uh, I, I just find that because the traffic is so bad that I actually prefer in most cases to ride a bike, which is almost as fast as driving, believe it or not. Um, wow. if you're out at rush hour and you know, we'll see, we'll see if I, if I, uh, start any trends, that's my hope. You know, that's people are going to see me out there and be like, you know what? I should do that too. And then eventually we'll be able to like take over entire roads. Um, which is another, this is a fantasy of mine, especially during this pandemic where I'm like, I wish the mayor would just be like, you know what? We're going to shut down Wilshire Boulevard. No no cars because people need to get out. You can just ride your bikes on Wilshire and go for long walks on Wilshire, but they won't do it because people will still be too close to one another. 
But uh, my fantasy LA has like entire thoroughfares that just become pedestrian and bike roads. I love that. Yeah. I love that idea. Here, there's almost no sidewalks. Really? Yeah. You know, so, I've, I've never been to Austin. I'm so embarrassed that I haven't been to Austin. Oh, you should come. You should come sometime. What's, you should come to the Texas Book Festival. Once, yeah. What's the best time? Because it's I. I can't do heat. Heat is bad. My my. Uh, like I hide inside during the summers in LA. I'm not built for heat, but I, is the winter good? The winter's good. The spring is good. Right now it's a little hot, but um, March is a great month to come. It's just everything is just exploding with flowers and you know greenery, and we have a little garden, and it's just it's just going crazy right now. It's so nice, yeah. but um, it's not um, LA is so shockingly beautiful. Every time I, I'm here, I'm like, wow, look at our garden. This is amazing. And then I go to LA and it's just like the stuff in the median strip, like the stuff that is <laughs> just like the junk stuff is so much nicer and just crazy, beautiful and weird. Like there's so many weird plants there. And so, no, it's, no I, I want to say I, there's more, there's more, but I think, California, or at least this was the case in the 20th century, had more like biodiversity or plant diversity than any other state in the Union. Uh, and I think second was Texas. So we live in two two places where I think things grow easily. Wow, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. I want to say I read that somewhere, but yeah, what, what's interesting is you know Los Angeles is this desert. Um, but of course it's like, in, you know, been engineered so that we have all this fresh water coming in from the mountains and from the Colorado river and everything. And if you combine water with this amount of sunshine and whatever I guess is in the soil, things grow like crazy. And in the spring, like we just had a, some rain and what always amazes me is like, you can take the, like the hills, you know, like the, uh, the Santa Monica mountains or the San Gabriel mountains or whatever it is. And you, you hit them with like a couple of days of rain and they will go from being like washed out and Brown to being like bright green inside of a week. It feels like, like things just, mm -hmm. it just blooms immediately. Um, and I find that fascinating. So that's beautiful. Yeah. I love it. And, uh, what about animals? Like now that you're, uh, you've written this book, like, are you raising chickens? Did you steal away? You know, did you smuggle a chick out when you were on your farm visit? <laughs> like, did, <laughs> did you, do you have, uh, like, uh, you know, I think I heard a dog. Didn't I hear a dog in the background? Like what, what's your animal situation looking like? We just have one dog. Um, yeah, just one dog. My husband, he he loves dogs, but he didn't know that until we got this one. Um, so what kind of dog is it? He's just he's a mutt. Okay. He's uh, he's just kind of a he's like a, a Yorkie Schnauzer kind of mix. He was running around the Bronx and uh, got picked up um, by animal control, and uh, a woman I know named, named Nikki found him uh, at the shelter and got him out and and then said you know what you need a dog i was like great i do need a dog <laughs> <laughs> yeah we got it we've got a rescue too she's actually in the room with me right now oh yeah, yeah mine, is, mine is also here so can if you if you get if you were to get a chick can you keep a chicken as a pet 
Yeah, I mean, historically, people kept chickens as pets, definitely. Um, and yeah, we have neighbors all over the place who have chickens as pets. Um, they keep them outside. I don't think they've let them in the house, but they have these little. You can you can buy these um, these coops that are pretty fancy. Um, the only thing is that I. I mean, and this is me again about ownership. I, I don't really think that we have the right to buy to buy each other. And by each other, I mean animals. Um, like, we are also animals. I don't think that we can buy each other. So, you know, like, I wouldn't buy a dog. You know, I got a rescue, um, and I made a donation. Um, I wouldn't buy a chicken. I wouldn't order chickens online. Um, this is, again... You know, you're just you'll just probably just disagree with me, especially if you're thinking about getting your own chickens. But no, I'm just curious. I mean, I, like if I was going to have chickens, it would be like there were rescue chickens that needed homes um, like the sanctuaries that save chickens regularly. Um, you can you can get a rescue chicken through them or chickens through them. Um, most people who have chickens, like all my neighbors and stuff, that's not how they got those, their chickens because the rescue chickens are, they're a little beat up. They're a little older. Um, there might not be the particular, um, type of chicken that you imagined yourself having. Um, whereas can I stop you there? Cause this mm -hmm. is, this is something I notice, uh, maybe in particular in Los Angeles that kind of drives me a little bit crazy. Um, is that people get their dog based on their Instagram feed. I feel like this happens. They're like, oh, you know, we need to get this bioengineered, perfectly cute dog that, like, doesn't shed and, like, just looks great in photos. It's almost like a style choice. <laughs> Am I crazy? Like, I'm, like, sometimes I feel like that's, like, part of the calculation. Like, how is this going to reflect upon me and my social media feed? Yeah, I know that you're right about that. That's so sad. That's so sad. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with chickens. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> if I'm going to get a chicken, I'm going to get like this perfectly white chicken with like a beautiful comb and plume and, but no, you, you should get the beat up rescue chicken. Yeah. The beat up rescue chicken, you know, they're, they're pretty badass. you know, they've, they've, they can do something. They've they seen, can tell stories. They've seen some shit. Exactly. Where, yeah. Where would so, one, where would one go if one wanted to rescue some chickens? You just go to a sanctuary and say, "Hey, you know, can I take some off your hands?" Or, yeah. Well, what you do is you look online at the different sanctuaries that are not too far from you. Um, you know, you just put in like animals, or uh, you put in farm animal sanctuary. Um, there's several outside of LA. Um, there's some great ones outside of San Francisco. Um, and, um, yeah, and you just call them up and say, I'm, I'm interested. Some of them just have it that some of them have information about adopting, um, an animal right on their websites. Others you can call and say, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to give a home to some rescue chickens and they're thrilled, you know, cause they've got more animals and more animals than, than they know what to do with. Um, there's this one woman who is outside of San Francisco who has this giant piece of land and she will tell farmers when you are getting ready to slaughter your spent hens, I'll take them or as many as I can. And so then she's constantly looking for um, people to take chickens off of her hands. Mm -hmm. um, 
And yeah, and then you've got this kind of like badass beat up hen who's been living in a cage its whole life. And then it's cool because then you, you look, you watch them discover grass and sky and it's pretty neat. So what about, okay, so if you get one of these, uh, these rescue hens and you have a coop in your backyard and then the hen starts laying eggs then it's okay. Like you're just like, okay, I can eat these. Or what do you, or you just let the, then if you leave the so, egg, uh, eggs alone, don't they turn into more chickens? <laughs> <laughs> no, they have to be fertilized. Oh, right. Okay. So what do you do? What do you do with the eggs? I guess is well, more. okay. So under that circumstance, I would support anyone eating those eggs. If you rescued those chickens and they're your friends and they all have names and you rescued them just to rescue them, then, and they're laying eggs. What are you supposed to do? Okay, chickens will eat their own eggs as, as protein. They will, you know, peck open the egg if it's not fertilized and eat the eat the yolk inside because it is nutritious, but they're not going to eat all of them. So I am in support. That's the only circumstance under which I feel like, yeah, you go ahead and you eat that egg. Good for you. Okay, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. That is how you can eat a humane egg. you got to rescue a chicken. And if you wanted to get, like, if you're thinking about feeding a family, you'd have to rescue more than one because they're only putting, what, a, a new egg into the world every 32 hours or so. Yeah, and, and at some point they're not going to lay eggs anymore because um, they will molt, they will rest. The next year they will, ra they will, they will have more eggs, but it will be fewer. So each year it will be fewer eggs. Um, so you can't slaughter them. You know, you have to keep them, um, let them live out their lives. And, you know, chickens can live, you know, eight years, but in the meantime, yeah, you get more, you know, you've just, you've got your little family. They like to be together. They've got, they like their little communities. Um, so yeah, you can rescue a bunch of them. Hmm. All right. Well, now I'm, uh, you've inspired me. You've inspired me. We have, uh, it's like a Los Angeles thing. We have like this artificial turf in our backyard. Um, just cause it was hard to keep the grass alive cause we do live in a desert. So like, I'm thinking like if I had chickens back here, they would be like walking around on this artificial turf and probably being like confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you would throw down like some grain and some hay or, you know, you would throw down some stuff for them. Yeah. Okay. They like to dust bathe, you know? What did you say? They like, they like to bathe in dust. Oh, they do. Yeah, yeah. So you put down like some some dust like that you can buy this bag of stuff and you put it down and then they just they like snuggle down in it and they throw their arms up in the air, their wings and it's it's adorable. Okay. It's really adorable. I just had an idea for you, Deb. I think you should start a consulting business where you coach people who are like are chicken curious into like how to do chickens the right way. Like you've well, done you've done all the research. I've done the research, but I've never done it myself. I mean, we don't have chickens here, so it would have to be someone else. I could, I could, I could coach someone in some particulars. Like I could tell them about it and tell them where to go. But that's it. And then, what about animal activism? Like, is there are there ways that this book has changed you manifestly? Like, you can look at new ways that you're behaving or organizations that you've joined. Like, did anything like that? Uh, come about as an outgrowth of working on this book? I mean, not really because I was already vegan and, um, but 
you know, I did things like I got a chicken tattoo. Um, the first tattoo I ever got, I only have two tattoos. And the first one is a bird that's on my shoulder. It's like a bird in flight. And I got it when I was 19. And I was like, nobody's going to put me in a cage. Um, and then when I was writing this book and I got married, I was like, you know what? I'm still a bird, but I'm not in flight anymore. I'm like a settled hen. So so I got a chicken tattoo. Wow. Is it color? Like, is it in color? No. It's like a, it's tribal. It's tribal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. Um, I mean, I think if you get a tattoo as an outgrowth of writing a book, then, you know, you've done your work. <laughs> right? Or it's, it's left a mark on you, literally. Yes, it has. Uh, well, I so enjoyed it, and I, I love talking with you. I only wish we could have done it in person, but uh, extenuating circumstances, and we'll have to get it done next time around. Yes. Well, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure, yeah. really. And, and I'm really looking forward to one day coming to L.A. and hanging out. Awesome, Deb. Well, thanks for the time. Congrats again, and stay safe. You too. Right, everybody there you go that's deb olin on her new novel is called barn eight it is out there now from gray wolf press she's on instagram she has an author page on facebook check it out deb olin on the novel is called barn eight the official march pick of the nervous breakdown book club go get your copy do that Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview. If you have something to say and you would like to uh, write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. If you want to follow the show on Instagram, the handle is at otherppl.podcast. If you want to support the program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget about the Other People app, the official app of this program. It's free. It's a free app. The Other People with Brad Listy app. Get it wherever you get your apps. It's a good app. Go get the app. So, uh, I feel like we're entering a new phase of the, uh, shelter in place. Like at first it was kind of a novelty and it was sort of funny. It's sort of like, okay, let's do this. Now it's kind of dawning on everybody. Like this is going to go on for a while. Shit's going to be crazy for a while. I think everybody goes through different cycles, different phases, right? Maybe you did it in a different sequence, but you, I think you alternate between sort of like rye acceptance you might even feel silly about it. Maybe you even like it in a weird way because it like justifies feeling lazy, kind of wearing sweatpants all the time. And then on the other side of things, you start to freak out about like worldwide economic collapse, possible uh, outbreaks of violence, bread lines. Oh, fuck. So you just got to kind of try to keep yourself on some sort of equilibrium. I'm standing here beside myself. 